Hi, my name is Titi Mutendi and you are listening to Enterprising Families Podcast. Welcome to the world of Enterprising Families where we discuss the issues of governance, next gen and looking at how families of wealth and family businesses growing into families of wealth can preserve their wealth, become better as they go forward into a new generation. Hi everyone and welcome to this episode of Enterprising Families and on this episode of Enterprising Families I have the amazing Mary Duke and we are going to be speaking about learning families and I know that most families have got values, traditions and they have got things that they have held on to for the longest times but as families grow and they change, we add more values, we add more traditions, and we change certain things that don't apply to different generations. And so in this conversation, we're going to explore how the changing world and changing families are impacted and what learning families can look at and experience through these turbulent times and also through the times where the seas are not so rough. So welcome, Mary. Thank you, a treat to be here. And I'm just going to ask you to introduce yourself to my audience so that they know who you are and uh, like I said, how amazing you are. <laughs> sure, well, thank you. Um, it's very flattering and, and honored to be among the, the amazing people you've had as uh, participants in your podcast. So thank you for including me. I'm Mary Duke, so I sit here in the United States, but my work has always been very, very global. Um, and it's taken many different forms. I uh, trained up in all the technical fields. So I have, I'm a certified accountant. I am a lawyer and also have an MBA in, in finance and, and background in finance and investing. So wearing all of those technical hats in the service of families, um, as well as having served as a family office executive for two different families in single family offices, so, you know, I, I've observed families from a lot of different perspectives. And one of the keys that I've, I've concluded is that the, the challenges, the biggest challenges to families don't arise out of those technical fields where I have my training. They arise out of the intersection of the emotional and the human with the economic aspects of the family as well. And, and those, the complexity around the human interaction, um, the dynamics, uh, the trust, the communication issues is really where the issues lie. And so I have dedicated you know, the second half of my, my career to competencies in those spaces so that I can integrate both the, the uh, technical and the human emotional in my work with families. So I'm an independent advisor to families work with a handful. My family's, uh, you know, one defining characteristic is they have large operating enterprises, big companies that, so the challenges of succession and transition and stewardship in these businesses is always front of mind with, with my families. Interesting. So Mary, you and, I've, you and I have explored some interesting topics together. And one thing we both agree on is how the world is changing. And I think in the last two years with uh, COVID, fourth industrial revolution, um, ESG, there's been just so much going on, so much chatter, so much movement. How do you see this accelerated pace and scale of change impacting families? 
Well, well, change is really such a, a um, lightning rod for families. And as you touched on in, in your opening comments, families are changing. Um, families change as they grow, but also the definition of family in our world today is changing so dramatically. It's much more exclusive and inclusive and expansive. Um, and that has implications for families as well as the economic change that's taking place. So, you know, one interesting, one reason I'm delighted to be connected with you, Tzitzi, and your, and your community of listeners is um, the change is happening everywhere. But one great indicator of that change, I listened recently to Hod Lipson, who's a professor at Columbia, and he um, wrote Singularity. He works on artificial intelligence. And he was talking about population growth in the world and that by 2050, the projections, which have historically been quite accurate, so there's no reason to question this, um, are that there will be another 4 billion people in the world. And three quarters of that growth will take place in Africa and South Asia. And his recommendation was that the, that population growth is going to fuel the, the need for such innovation and resources and, and development that, that smart investors would be buying land <laughs> around the Indian Ocean because all trade, the center of the world's economy is going to be the, the world around the Indian Ocean. So fascinating. And, and that's just one little signal of the type of change that's to come. So how does this affect families? I do consider one of my, my roles in work with family is to, to sort of be scanning the horizon for things that are coming up and things that will impact families. And certainly this change, this economic change is one of them. Um, economists won't agree what to call it. You mentioned the fourth economy. You hear the intangible economy. Uh, there's several names for it. But all of them do agree that there's a huge shift taking place. And it's no less monumental than the shift that took place with the Industrial Revolution. So the, the three things that trigger a new economy are a new form of power or a source of power. So we have alternative energies, a new source of transportation, autonomous vehicles fits that, and a new form of communication, which would be the internet. And boy, have we seen how that has impacted the world. Mm. So this new economy, what the heck does this new economy mean for families? And, and that you know, is, is one of the key things I do. So looking at this change, um, a key point that parallels something I've observed in families is the rise of intangible assets. Mm. If you look at corporate balance sheets today versus the balance sheets 20 years ago, you'll see this massive expansion of intangible assets. Mm. Most of the assets on a major corporation's balance sheet are no longer furniture and fixtures and real estate and buildings and they are intellectual property they are brand value they are intangible they are things that when you wrap up a business if it goes bankrupt have zero value they disappear poof overnight and and so that intangible value that intangible asset is a really interesting concept because it parallels a very important lesson we, we bring into our work in families. I'm a huge proponent of Jay Hughes's philosophy, which starts with the belief that the greatest asset in any family is its human capital, mm -hmm. it's the people. It's not its stuff, 
It's not the money, it's the people. And those people deserve as much attention and to be grown and focused on and developed as people spend managing their investments. Mm -hmm. um, so with that as a, as a background, human capital is intangible capital. Mm. And it's, it's fragile, just like, you know, I mentioned that the intangible capital of a company like Airbnb, um, Uber mm. can disappear overnight. They don't own, Uber doesn't own any cars. They have no assets that can disappear overnight. Same with family capital, it can be destroyed. And the things that destroy family capital are those intangible aspects, the failure to communicate well, a lack of trust among family members and, and the failure to have grown their rising generation and equipped them to succeed. And when we're looking at um, human capital, I think it's been one of the most overlooked sources of capital globally, because when we look at humans, people tend to, I think we went through a, a whole period where the industrial revolution focused on mechanical, focused on systems, focused on everything that you could optimize. And it undervalued the fact that as human beings, we can be optimized. So we often talk about human capital. And it can be very, very difficult to conceptualize. <laughs> can you go deeper into what that actually means and what the impact of it is on family? Right. I, no, absolutely. And it, it is one of the challenges because we talk about, it's easy to embrace that concept. Yes, I believe in human capital. That's important. But how do you act, activate on that? What do you do to actually operationalize the concept? Mm -hmm. And that's my work with families. So it really begins with breaking it down a little bit. So what, what's comprised of this intangible capital in families? So first is the human capital, the people themselves. And, and the inquiry there and the work with families is to ensure that every single family member is flourishing. And what is flourishing for each family member? It's going to be different. We're not all the same. Not everyone's going to do or want or seek the same things. So how can a family support its individuals in becoming the people they are meant to be? So that's the human capital piece. And you know, a family is only as strong as its weakly, weakest family member, right? So if you have mm -hmm. someone who's struggling and invariably families do, rather than scapegoating or ignoring the situation, how, what can be done to support someone who has you know, maybe lost their way or gotten off track? Important to think about how the family might marshal its financial capital to support an individual. And that doesn't mean babysitting and it doesn't mean getting away with, but how can you really help someone grow beyond their, through their difficulties, right? Mm -hmm. um, so that's, that's that human capital. Then there's the spiritual capital. And, and in that, what I mean by that is, is there a transcendent purpose that the family agrees on? Mm -hmm. Can they, have they found the thing that holds them together? And interestingly, this really needs to be re-examined on a regular basis. Certainly each generation, as it ascends uh, to its, its role uh, at the helm, has to think about why they want to be together. And, and in working with families, very often there's a struggle. As a patriarch passes away, the individuals might think, what is, why bother? You know, yeah. this is complicated, it's hard. There's a lot of emotional baggage 
why? And if and and the answer isn't always that you should. Sometimes families need to think about how they can peaceably, you know, live separately and do their separate things. But I do encourage families, especially families with significant wealth that is held together, sort of binds them together because it's held in trust or in operating companies or illiquid assets that they are, they're sort of bound together by, mm-hmm. that, that families can find a middle ground. They don't have to be together with everything and they don't necessarily have to part ways 100%. They can agree when and how they want to be together as a family. And I think every generation has to think about that. And, and in doing that, they can find that transcendent purpose. What is the thing we are all bound together around in this family? And it doesn't have to be everything. Mm-hmm. But that's important in working with families to find that. Then, then another aspect of human capital is the social capital. And in this category, I really look at how does the family interact with each other Mm-hmm. socializing and the rest of the world, its community, uh, the, the groups they influence, and do they have good systems for one decision-making? How does this group make decisions among themselves for managing very naturally rising conflict in a family? Um, and this is where facilitation really plays an important role. It's important for um, families to have someone who holds a space for them to all show up as peers mm-hmm. and to, to manage that space for them. Um, the last aspect of capital is, is intellectual capital. And that really is the learning system of a family and drawing on those unique gifts of every family member. Not everyone is, is going to be book smart genius, but everyone has something to contribute to a family. They all have different gifts. And if a family can find a way to tap into and not exclude, um, they're going to be richer for those assets. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And sorry, I'm just gonna bring you back a, a couple of steps when we look at, at these sure. capital. Um, firstly, spiritual capital. I'm looking at it from my experience um, and seeing, I think from an African context, we have had um, a lot of influences in what we believe is our spiritual capital in families. So Mm -hmm. you have those who have religious inclinations and then you have those who have spiritual inclinations towards the traditional religion and some who choose not to have a religion at all and become agnostic. Mm -hmm. How do you handle conflict in a family when they're not aligned in that spiritual capital space because you do find in in some families where you have generations believing different things but then you have a consistent thread sometimes and then you have then a next gen that comes in and completely dilutes this water (laughs) this is um that's a yeah. great question, CT, and it's something that is not unusual at all. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, and I think I would start by making the distinction between spiritual, as, as I conceive it in this conversation, and religion. Okay. And okay. they're both important. Um, they're both, you know, religion. I think we're seeing globally that there is a diminution of adherence to religious practices across mm-hmm. all. Mm-hmm. So, um, 
and you see that, you know, the elder generation is often you know, somewhat devastated that the younger generation isn't picking up the practices. Yeah. That is what we deal with. And, and it's no different, although it can be a little more emotionally charged, uh, but it's no different from other practices that new generations ignore. Yep. <laughs> yep. Um, so it, it's important to, and, and this is where, again, getting down to, if you can bring things back to virtues and values mm. um, that are quite honestly universal across mm-hmm. faiths, religions. you know, yes. we're talking about religion. Um, there are so many human values and virtues that a family, if you can stop the religious conversation and get onto virtues and values, what are the things that are really important to us? Absolutely. It can, you know, sort of mute and mitigate some of the tensions that arise out of that. But also important not to ignore the fact that there are tensions and mm-hmm. managing these tensions and naturally occurring conflict in families is part of equipping a family to thrive. Is they it's going to happen. You're going to have differences. There are going to be issues. There will be emotional upset. How do you as a group agree that you will work through them, that you will face those challenges and not walk away? Mm-hmm. So it's a three-part question. Part two, social capital. Yeah. How do you handle, like, I think one of the things that I loved about what you said about social capital is that it starts within the interaction of the family within itself and then it goes out. So it's more like charity begins at home and then you spread that love outside the home. What happens when, or what have you seen happening when at home, it's a bomb. It's like, we are not interacting well, yet because we are um, stalwarts of our community, people look up to us and our business and what we've managed to do and as inspirations, because obviously when we look at success, the whole world looks at success as an inspiration. So that in itself makes us interact with the world in a way, even if we're not prepared to interact in, with it in any other way. How do families bridge that communicating within themselves because it obviously if you can't communicate within yourself it's not going to be easy to make that circle bigger and start communicating with the world around you because you don't know how to communicate so how important is it to get that communication right within the microorganism of family well you know it's a very very important distinction you're picking up on and in a perfect world, you'd say, yes, let's start at home and fix everything here and then roll it out. Uh-huh. Sometimes though, and, and let's not diminish the magnitude of some of the emotional hurts and historic yeah. impasses that families can share. Mm-hmm. And you know, no one waves a magic wand and makes those things go away. Mm-hmm. Where I have found very significant conflict, mm-hmm. my my goal is to find something that those people in conflict can rise above mm-hmm. to engage in. something that's so important to them that they can see beyond the conflict at hand. Mm-hmm. Very often I have found you can inspire them to get out of their mess and focus on their children, the rising generation. If you can yes. say, listen, 
you guys have issues at your generation and we may never fix those, Mm -hmm. but think about the implications for the rising gen and Mm -hmm. what you need to do because what you don't solve at your generation, you're leaving for them to solve. Mm -hmm. And so let's see if we can work around that. Um, So that would be one way internally to try and focus attention and get people inspired. But the other other thing I've seen work is to find an external cause Mm -hmm. that you that is important that and interestingly sometimes when it is external because it's done in public because it's seen um people are on better behavior (laughs) (laughs) and sometimes just collapse sometimes just time and being next to each other getting to know each other in a different forum Mm -hmm. um maybe someone you hate at the breakfast table but when you get out and you're aligned and doing something together in public, you see, oh, okay, she's not so bad. I, I, you know, she, she did, she did a good thing there. Mm-hmm. I appreciate. It. Anyway, that can be helpful. So, it's not one or the other. You want to be great in both forms, both in the family and externally. But sometimes the external can help you back into better relations internally. Mm-hmm. And then my last question before we move on to the learning is um, I always hear this from a lot of professionals, that's lawyers and also bankers and so forth, where when I say, oh, I work with families and family governance, um, there's not a deeper understanding of what family governance is. Everybody jumps to corporate governance. And so the conversation becomes, I think, yes, more family businesses need to institutionalize. And I always struggle with that because I find that it's almost like you're telling the family to hide that human capital, that ability to be human and to experience the emotion of being human and navigate it and then use that experience to take the family forward. And it, at times it even takes the business forward. And institutionalizing to a certain extent, it's almost like people are being put into a space where they're being told, do not acknowledge the fact that you're human, do not acknowledge the fact you have relationship, do not acknowledge the human capital side, but instead, let's just look at balance sheets and let's stop there. And so my question would be, what are your thoughts around this whole this whole conversation around institutionalizing families. Right. Um, you know, I, and again, coming from a, a profession of origin of the law, mm-hmm. I know all too well how easy it is to sort of fall into to structuring and to documenting and believing that that's going to be the solution. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have learned in spades over and over and over again, that if you do not acknowledge the human, it comes up one way or the other. And it usually comes up in the wrong place in a very disruptive way. Mm -hmm. It is so important for families to honor their familiness. And I think they can organize themselves. I wouldn't call it institutionalizing, but they can organize themselves and put some process in place Mm -hmm. to help them be family, to, to have a place where the family does come together 
for transparency around what's going on, for a place to be heard, a place to, to problem solve mm-hmm. together as a family that honors and respects the boundaries between things like the board or the family, the owners, the actual owners of a, a mm-hmm. family business. And those owners can be very complicated in families with significant wealth. It can be trusts. It can be, ownership can be disintermediated through shareholder agreements and other things. So the term owner in families is is, um, worthy of a whole nother podcast. Who are the owners in family businesses? And what does that mean? I I like to use the term stewardship because Mm -hmm. families have a duty to steward that that might be held in trust. but creating that place where the family comes together and sits alongside, doesn't have an, a reporting relationship, doesn't have authority, direct authority over owners, directors, or management in a business, but that it has its own structure, its own, own shape and self and processes and agrees its own ground rules and gives airing for all those family things. Mm-hmm. Which brings us to today's focus. Learning <laughs> families. Yeah, a, a great topic. And, and again, in, in a world that's changing as rapidly as the one we acknowledge ours is, um, learning is the ultimate survival skill. It is the Swiss army knife of, of family competencies. And, and the reason being um, the ability to integrate new, I, I think about, when I was growing up, you were always asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? I'm not sure I've grown up yet, but <laughs> you know, you were supposed to plot a, a career path in your mind and move toward it. You were expected to go to university and study a subject and go into a field and be that for your career. That concept is so outdated today. You know, the reality is the jobs that will exist in 10 years don't exist today. Mm-hmm. So you can't go to university to study to be them because we don't even know what the jobs will be. That's how rapidly this economy is changing. So the ability to learn quickly, integrate new knowledge and understand and take on a new job that just cropped up that no one ever thought about when you were going to school, this con- and that learning is never over. You don't go to university and then close the books and move on. It's a constant. It, and that's why uh, the term learning family is so important. We need to be equipped to take on new, adapt and leverage new information. And and again, it's so important, not just to survive. I love the concept of anti-fragility. Nassim Tlaib wrote the book, Mm Anti-Fragility. And he differentiates the concept of anti-fragile, which anti-fragile things are things that not only survive chaos, but they actually thrive in chaos. Chaos change upheaval. They are at their best and they grow as a result of that. Um, The perfect example of something that's anti-fragile is a human being. Uh Think about children. Children grow under stress and and challenge. That's that's how we grow. That's that's what makes us um, Uh into. So so this concept of anti-fragility different from resilience. If you think about resilience, a word that's very popular in our space, mm-hmm. I think of someone, um, if there were a, a tsunami coming, someone who's resilient stands pat 
and the wave rushes over them and they're still there when the wave goes over. Mm-hmm. But they're unchanged. They're resilient. They stayed the course. They stayed the same. Someone who's anti-fragile hops on a surfboard and rides that tsunami. You know, they're gonna, they're gonna find ways to move forward with it. Mm-hmm. And so this concept of anti-fragility starts with learning. You know, you've got to be able to, to shift and change and adapt and see a future that's different and move toward it. Um, I'll, I'll go back to that concept of intangible assets. So I mentioned that companies now have so many intangible assets and that's a nice parallel with families and their human capital or intangible assets. But if we look at, it's a, it's a good um, parallel with families. What did companies do when this started happening? Corporations, starting with IBM back in the 90s, this has created a new role of the chief learning officer. Mm-hmm. This is not just a gussied up HR person. This is someone who truly has, has a focus on growing the human intellectual capital of, of their business employees. The people mm-hmm. who ride up and down the elevators every day mm-hmm. are now seen as an asset worthy of being invested in. And that's what these chief learning officers do. If you look at um, the list of chief learning officers today, virtually every Fortune 500 company has a chief learning officer now. It has expanded that quickly. Um, Quite honestly, a few years ago, it was a new term to me. I hadn't even heard of it. And now it is just absolutely required. Just as you have a chief financial officer, you have a chief learning officer. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, what can mm-hmm. families learn from this? Families need learning officers, whether it's a family member or they bring in professionals to help them, but they need to think of themselves as a learning system. And we need people to help us internally and externally continue to grow. So a learning family has two important skills. One, they need to be skilled at acquiring new language and sharing it out with the, the family. Mm-hmm. So the acquisition of knowledge, very important, sort of obvious. The second aspect is much harder. And that is a family has to be able to modify its behavior to reflect that new learning. That's harder, takes a lot more time. It's mm-hmm. one thing to read a book. It's another thing to put the learning from that book into practice in your life, mm-hmm. to shift, to change. That's a true learning family is one that's not only just gathering information, but is actually operationalizing it, using it, integrating it. And that takes deep human engagement. And I think um, you know, there's an interesting distinction here in learning. Mm-hmm. The two pieces often referred to as horizontal development and vertical development. Mm-hmm. Horizontal learning, horizontal development is, is gaining new information. It's, it's traditional learning. When we sit in a classroom, when we um, take a course in something, that is very traditional. It's horizontal. We need to combine horizontal learning with vertical, vertical learning or vertical development, Uh which is the expansion of our capacity. So I I use the equivalent of a a wine carafe. If you um, are filling the wine carafe, your brain, maybe your mind is your wine carafe and you're filling it with learning. Mm-hmm. Vertical development gives you a bigger carafe. You, you expand your capacity. And, and the vertical development is things around emotional, managing self, um, managing uh, conflict. Uh, it's all the, the EQ aspects. 
and both are important. And a family can do both at the same time. When you're working with a family, you put a curriculum together, you identify competencies they want to develop. And some of those competencies will be horizontal. Mm-hmm. Maybe they need to learn financial, uh, you know, capital assessment, but they also need to work better as a team. That would be vertical and horizontal because you put them together as a cohort to learn something and you're getting two competencies at, at once. So um, it's sort of a, a, an interesting idea that families need to grow on both, both axes. Mm. And, I, and I love the example that you used. It's so, it's so apt. It is so apt. Well, thank you so, so much. I have enjoyed this conversation. I think it's taken me to um, different touch points that make sense to me in the context of the families that I've worked with and the families that I still continue to work with. And also it brings into focus one of the most important conversations right now. How can we invest more in the families because they are the ones growing the economies across the globe and more so after what's been going on with a global pandemic and economies being crushed everywhere. It's the family businesses that are really going to rise and and meet the day because we know the anti-fragility as well as some of the resilience that they seem to have and they seem to weather most storms. As we wrap up today, I would like to ask you, what are your final thoughts and words to my audience today around learning, growing, and um, going forward into this space that is vastly unknown, but it is something that we have to do anyway. Well, thank you. You know, we know from science that very few of us can think creatively or critically or innovatively at the highest levels when we're by ourselves. And our greatest lesson is that we can't do this alone. So we learn best in community. And what better community is there than that of your family? So being a learning family is is a very important and doable objective. Absolutely. Thank you so, so much, Mary. You bet. Thank you, Susie.